0: welcome to two cents fc i'm your host imobio kugo here with my guy l each week we'll be discussing topics from around the soccer world and giving you our unfiltered thoughts and opinions this week we're changing it up a little bit we got the host of river city 93 and can i kick it podcast yogi and founder yeah, of non non-league america and friend of the show steve bailey uh thank you guys for joining us uh happy holidays to anyone listening um L, let's get right into it. I know, I know, we got a lot to talk about, a lot to unpack. Uh, what you got for us this week?
1: Yeah, so this week we're going to be talking about something that's a a very sensitive topic, a polarizing topic in uh, soccer Twitter, uh, primarily, <laughs> but um, something that a lot of people have been championing. Um, mostly people who support lower league teams and stuff like that. They want the they want the soccer system to be more open. So. Pro-Rail is, is what I'm talking about. If you have, haven't caught on yet, but one thing um, that I noticed that Yogi actually brought up in a Twitter conversation that kind of piqued my interest is the economic effects of um, Pro-Rail. So a lot of times when you hear the Pro-Rail discussion, mm-hmm. we're talking about strictly from a sport perspective or from, you know, a team perspective, like allowing my lower league team to work its way up to the big leagues, et cetera. But we never talk about the economics of, um Having this open system, how that affects communities, Um, you know who who gets the trickle down effects of these of this open system. So I want to jump right into it. Um, I'll let Ellie go first, um, and then Steve, you can you can give your perspective. But go ahead, man. All
2: right, y'all. So first of all, just want to say thank you guys for having me on again. Um, Also, yeah. Also, I'm going to open up. I'm not like anti pro-rail. It might come across that way, but I'm like, I am for a pro-rail, but I'm anti of just doing things just for the sake of doing things, like just throwing it out there and be like, hey, it's going to fix everything. And so for those who don't know, like I'm a history major, so I've always been taught in my history classes to like kind of question everything, not like from a negative standpoint, but more of a standpoint of trying to understand why things happen the way that they do and how do they impact things down the road. And that's kind of like my thing with ProRail, is more of the sense of if if rail happens, one, who's the governing body that's going to implement it? How does that governing body implement the system? Um, is it going to be a thing of which it comes from the top down or the bottom up? And then also like, how does this affect like black communities, Latin communities, things of that nature? Because what I've seen from some people on Twitter is about how if you implement pro automatically, black people are gonna love the sport. And that's the thing I'm like, <laughs> I don't see how that that like mindset works. And also like, I mean, L, you saw the conversation about how the guy was trying to tell me about how um, that once if black Row pro-rail comes in, it's gonna, obviously you're gonna have like these black owners that's gonna start owning all these sports and start owning all these teams. And mm-hmm. I get that. My thing about that is, one, what I was saying, like, the whole trickle-down economics about it is, when something like this happens, we know that sometimes Black people are going to be the back end of the stick-up. It's not designed that way, but usually that's what happens. There's not a lot of Black ownership already in sports. Like, I, can, from my recollection, I think I could count maybe four Black owners, four in or five.
0: So- in soccer or just in general? In soccer. Yeah.
2: It's soccer. I'm only thinking um,
0: like four or five. Yeah, you got Magic Johnson, Kevin Durant, James Harden, um, and then I think Trevor Broker, He's part of the DC.
2: um, Okay. Then you
1: got the USL. Yeah, yeah,
2: Beasley, Charlie Adams. I know there's one in Corpus Christi, Maryland Bobcats.
1: G day, yep.
2: And uh, New Jersey Teamsters. Is there anyone else I'm forgetting? Is is, Uh, I mean, even then, that's what maybe eight. Yeah. Maybe eight really so then my whole thing about that is is i'll kind of look at the situation they might not be the exact same but i kind of just if you peel back the onion and look at it almost like how the marijuana um how marijuana kind of came into america about how black people you know we've got some of the heavier charges for it but now all of a sudden around like 2017 18 1920 and so forth you kind of see now distribution centers trying to come out about. I, I mean, I can speak here from Virginia, like they just build a distribution center down here in Chesterfield, and that's majority white people owning it. But it's harder for African Americans to get into it and get like a viable foot into it. Like if you're a felon, you can't get into it, or to get like a you have to go through a certain reviewing board, and it's kind of like a who's who, and that's kind of where I, I have that struggling fight with it with pro um, with some people. And not like I'm trying to pick a fight, but it's more a sense of like, one, I want to know where you stand. But then also I want to know, like, how is this going to affect people of color in the sense of not only where do we benefit from it, but also how do, say like 10 years down the road, I want to become an owner. Am I going to have a viable foot into getting into that system the way how it's built? And then the trick—the trickle-down economics of it, like, how does that work? You know, how does that get spread out across? Because one thing that I've seen some people think on Twitter is that, I think I said it before, like, if you build pro-rail, then Black people are going to love the sport. And that's not true because, and once again, I can only speak for my community. The hardest thing about getting African-Americans into the sport is because, one, we see no one like us. Two, it's is seen as a pretty boy, white boy sport, almost like lacrosse, you know? And then three, there's no one in that particular family that teaches that sport. And then four, I, I hate to say it, it might sound messed up, but I mean, you guys will understand what I'm comfortable when I say this of how there's no direct path for us to go to college or go to the pros and make money to then support our families. Because that's when you have so many kids get shipped to football basketball baseball it's not because of the fact of it's a monopoly and things like that it's because of the fact of you've seen that route work so many times that it's like i'm gonna put my kid here you know like me for instance i love soccer i've loved it growing playing up but in the south oh you're 300 pounds oh you're gonna play on this offensive line like that's, that's the way how it works so it's, it's kind of that thing about it and you know, how does having pro row then disappear into like having this small local club being more into the community and things like that. And then also like my struggles with some teams are, and this is all teams across the board. Like I, I tell the Richmond Kickers the same thing. Like y'all expect people to come to you. You don't go out into their communities and meet them. And that's one thing that in the black community, why we have never really latched on to soccer, I feel like is because it, it's a white person sport in America. It's a sport of access. Like I have to almost put like a foreclosed mortgage to even have my kid play, you know, Sunday league soccer. Where in basketball, I know it's a support system there. I can have my kid play elementary, middle school, high school for free if I wanted to. And then on top of that, if you want to play AAU. But there's enough money in the AAU basketball team where the coach is going to pay for it. Is that that same access in, you know, amateur league soccer for kids. So I'll, I know I've been rambling for a minute, but I'm gonna stop there
1: now. I think that's a good, a good starting point, a good kind of, <clears throat> I guess, foundation, um, to kind of, I guess, give a different perspective of, you know, what the effects of pro row, you know, can bring to another community. Like so Steve, what you got, man.
3: So first of all, again, thank you for having me as well. Um, But I wanna, I wanna. There's a lot to cover, and Ellie, you just covered a lot of stuff. (laughs) Um, I've been taking notes, so uh, hopefully we'll kind of work our way through this. So let's start with this trickle down economics. Okay. On a a personal level and on a professional, (laughs) semi-professional analysis of ProReL, I am 100% against trickle down economics. And I think it's a that's not what this is. MLS is trickle down economics. Is billionaires, you know, taking access and leaving others out and letting if there's scraps, let you know the poor people pick up the scraps. That's trickle down economics. That's Republican thinking. That's you know the people who are the billionaires who are involved. <clears> and, <throat> like that's their world. That. <clears throat> Love pro-rel love, pro or hate it, it is what it is, is the opposite of trickle-down economics. It is empowerment from the ground up. Whether you believe it can be successful or not in the United States, that's the net, we'll, we'll get into that. But just like the nature of what of the structure, it is every team at every level, all the way down to the 20th division, naturally has some kind of equity because it is an independent business that is not responsible to any other business um, or any specific franchise. It's going to rise or fall on its own um, in an open system. It's the free market. it's the and in some ways that that's even more right wing, you know, it's a brutalist free market interpretation. you know there's going to be, Billionaire clubs at the top and there's going to be, you know, Sunday league amateur clubs at the bottom, but it would be one system where the results are decided on the field and as you climb high enough, not all the way to the bottom to the 20th division, but somewhere wherever the lines of demarcation are between um, that murky area where amateur transitions into semi pro into pro. There's going to be revenue streams naturally built into the system that um, provide the resources that clubs need in order to keep progressing up. You know, internationally, it mostly comes through TV money, um, and we know that TV deals and TV are small in the United States. TV ratings are small in the United States, and the basic premise is that the Excitement and the opportunity um, of clubs moving up through the system and the idea that there's hard competition every time the ball is kicked and that every game means something, there's like financial consequences and financial rewards for winning and losing. Um, it's not gonna fix everything. It's not a panacea. Um, so I, I had this idea when you were talking at the beginning, it's pro rel is not going to fix everything, but it is the only way things can be fixed. Mm. That's, I really believe that. Um, as to how it can be fixed, it can one of two ways, you know, specifically in the United States, either through um, the governing body, through US soccer, and get, getting people running for political, soccer, political office within the state associations, because the state associations at the amateur level, when taken in whole, um, can have the combined with the athletes council could outweigh the if I have it, if I have my math correct, could outweigh the total of the professional council and the directly controlled, you know, some seats that are controlling the, the balance of power in the US Soccer Federation. Now, to date, the Athletes Council has not shown any initiative to speak up on that behalf. It would take the block of the state associations combining with the Athletes Council in order to move within that system. The, an alternative uh, approach is establishing a separate parallel system. And so what would that governing body look like? That's actually what NISA is in the process of building. NISA is not a league. NISA is an association. Um, and that's actually its big grandiose goal is to be the, the National Independent Soccer Association. It's not the National Independent Soccer League. So that's when you look at some of these regional leagues that they're building and the the infrastructure that they're trying to build, between the connections between the regional leagues like the Midwest Premier League, the Gulf Coast Premier League, um, and some of these people that they're bringing into their fold, you know through the independent cup and hopefully into a promotion relegation system, they want to position themselves long term as an alternative federation um, that would that would oversee a lot of the uh, mechanisms that are required to support this system. One of the major mechanisms that's required to support an open system, Pro-REL is is kind of like a, it's a distraction in a way, because we're we're really talking about is the open system. Pro-REL is just the movement of clubs between the tiers, but an open system is all the devices that are required to make that work. And one of the biggest is uh, training compensation and solidarity payments, transfer fees, um, and clubs having direct access to those revenue streams so and that also solves the youth soccer access the pay-to-play is a scam the pay-to-play is what keeps it a white country club sport um and opening an open system and having those player development um revenue streams are, are what can solve that so if you you look at like a lot of times we think about the transfer fees and the multi-million dollar transfer fees in europe but those transactions Take place all the way down through the system in much smaller amounts. You know, in the if a club in the fifth tier is selling to another club in the third tier, they might transfer a player for twenty thousand dollars. You know, but twenty thousand dollars to a small neighborhood club, um, and even you know, transferring is a big deal. And you know, that's that could pay your 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 fees and and your costs for. Uh, operating an amateur team for, for two or three years, potentially. Um, and even down to the smallest level, transferring between uh, total amateur to amateur transfers, there would have to be money involved where now there's really no money involved, but it would be tracked. You know, tra- players could be transferred for $2,000, $5,000 um, between amateur clubs. So that's a, an area uh, that creates additional revenue streams. Um I love your comparison of, you know, white people in big business coming into marijuana and marijuana being a top down. Like that's again, that's the perfect example of the MLS model and what the MLS structure kind of does to soccer. Again, that's kind of the opposite of what an open system does. An open system is a total free market where independent sellers with minimal government restrictions um, would be opening their Mm -hmm. own shops and doing what their own business uh so i have a lot of other talking points but i think that um kind of covers most of the uh oh one other thing just on the like the country club sport thing lacrosse soccer comparison it's an apt comparison i definitely agree um but i think we see this culture changing rapidly now the idea of like um college is less important for say like the NBA, you see additional players go moving directly to Europe you know um, like you know the ball kids going to Lithuania and setting up their own club and and um like all that stuff like that all, all that type of route is possible in participation in a global system on the soccer level so yet it's in, before all this infrastructure gets built to the point where it's can sustain itself, We, I, I would advocate for more kids you know, going to Europe at young ages um, and going out there and getting money professionally any way that they can, as opposed to kind of being trapped in uh, this system, which is different from comparison to say football or, or, or basketball, because in football and basketball, there is a payoff at the end. But the reason why nobody plays soccer is because um, especially black people and especially low-income black people because there is no payday at the end what's the motivation for investing your time into this shit? and you're gonna you know pay two thousand dollars a year for a college scholarship that won't even cover the cost of what you forget the pros that college scholarship is a partial and it's not even going to cover uh the amount of money that you invested in your kid to get through that pay-to-play system you put twenty twenty thousand dollars into pay-for-play for for a ten thousand dollar scholarship that's backwards hustling then there's nothing at the top because you get out to a forty thousand dollar job when when even given income disparities in the United States that black kid is, is better off going to get a corporate job for 60 grand and MLS can't even offer him a freaking 60 grand job. So what are we talking about? You know there has to be a, a real it has to add up and no, in the promotion you're 100% relegation you're right, you're in, 100% right. In, yeah it, in the promotion relegation system it does add up if all the pieces are in place. And then yeah. so I want you, I'm going to stop and then we we'll, I have other points for other. No, no, you yeah. oh, like, okay.
2: I, I totally understand your whole point. Like, see, that's the part that I was struggling with to really get a grasp on because when you hear people talk about pro it's just like, oh, we're implementing this, we're taking it from England, put it in here. And I'm just like, that. I don't see how that's going to match up. And then like the point of... Like, cause, cause you're totally right. Like black people, I hate to say this about our culture, but if we don't see a payoff in it, we are like, yeah, what's the point of me doing it? You know? Like, let's be real. Like, I'm not going to go out here and just work for free. You know?
1: we did that for a like, lot years. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're free no you're more. not
2: doing that. So that, and that's my thing when it comes to, like, college sports. Um, Like, not college sports. Simply, but while, like, because for me, for instance, like I, I coach high school soccer. And once, I can only speak about my community where it's coaching high school soccer here in Virginia, I'm better off coaching like middle school basketball. Like middle school basketball, I have more of a budget than I do for high school soccer where I don't have to worry about sharing the field. I get my own practice of all this and a third. But when I have more parental support. To the schools make more money from it, so they're like, "Well, we're gonna throw more money towards basketball and football than we are at soccer." So that's where it's like that delayed development is, and that that latch on of interest because, and this is also ignorance in my our community as well as we look at soccer, we look at it from the standpoint of, "Oh, it's a Mexican sport, or it's the the prissy white boy sport." We don't look at it as a sport that could take us to. X, Y, and Z destination. It can, you know, take us to Europe, things like that. And that's that's mostly on, like, us. Like, I feel like now that you're seeing different Black voices in the sport of soccer. Myself, Two Cents, you know, for the Culture, Black Arrow. Like, I feel like that dynamic is going to change because now they're seeing positive embodiments in their community that's not only talking about it, writing about it, playing about it, things of that nature, like with the interests of USLBPA or, you know, the Black Players Coalition, like things like that is going to change the outlook on, on it. But I know like when I was growing up, I couldn't name you a Black soccer player because I didn't know any, you know? <laughs> but that's how it, it looks at it in our community. But that that's the part like I, I was struggling with, Steve, like just trying to understand like how is the system going to be built? You know, because, I mean, now that you're into it, like, how does – because correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, MLS, for the instance, every team is owned by the league, right? I mean, there's owners, but essentially it's owned by the league, right?
3: Yeah, they just own access right. to it's
0: single It's a single entity, so it's essentially like uh, MLS is McDonald's and then you have a bunch of franchise owners.
3: Okay. So, so yeah. They,
2: and
0: the team, they have a budget, but it's not like – uh, it's not like they can do whatever they want with it they got to adhere to a uh, guidelines
3: okay so and that's the part we cannot work with the way mls is set up right now it yeah. has to it has to exclude mlS and build in parallel or mlS has to fundamentally change but it that's just something that pro rail advocates have to accept and work to either destroy mls or build build something better you know um yeah that, that exists outside of, of their influence and their influence is minimal. And what they're doing, I would, I would argue that the, the market is artificially deflated by MLS and that their monopoly on the top tier of soccer in the United States is they have the a, a monopoly. and like, it doesn't have to be as small as it is, they do it like teams were up until just a couple of years ago teams were having single digit millions payrolls for 40 guys you know guys in the roster making 30 grand 40 grand i know they instituted a minimum salary increase a couple years ago i think it's up to 60 is that right no but- it's
0: higher now it's higher now so it should it's up to a 70 and over the course of the rest of the cba it will get up to at least 85. Okay, that's good.
3: I mean, 70 is a livable
0: wage. At
2: least they would be more um, than a teacher. You know, hey, positives.
0: I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, MLS is only 25 years old. So when we compare it to these sports, NBA, NFL, you know, sports that have billion-dollar TV TV deals, it's, it's always going to be tough to attract yeah. talent when it comes to, um, oh, I'm going to play soccer because I know I'm going to get the bag and I'm going to be able to take care of my family. Like, you don't see that. You, we're not talking about – this guy signed a million dollar deal to sign with L.A. Galaxy. But we do see, wow, LaMelo Ball just signed a Reebok deal and he's about to go top three pick. So until we start seeing those things, we're not going to get a mass uh, exodus of young black players getting into soccer unless okay. you have guys that are playing like the Demarcus Beasley's, the Eddie Johnson's, the you know black players that go back to their communities. And like you said earlier, getting them, you know, exposing them to be like, yo, I played soccer. This is what I was exposed to. I grew up. I was able to travel all over the world because of it. Something that you don't get in basketball or football. Um, And really, like, kind of you got to get like hands on. you got to get way more hands on if you want uh, black youth to get involved in the sport, because from the TV, you're not going to get that.
2: No, no, definitely not. And that's why like it really starts like in the high school, middle school, elementary school level. I would probably even say elementary school because that's when like your first proper introduction into sports is. That's when you kind of figure out like, all right, what sport is my friends playing? What sport I want to play? But at elementary school, like most of the money is getting backed into football, basketball, because like that's the majority of what people play, Mm -hmm. you know? And... Like I really like for the high school level, man, it's like so properly underfunded. And you can tell it just based on like how certain schools just worry about soccer. Because like even in my own district, like there's 18 schools, but only seven of us that play soccer. We're the only predominantly black school in the city that plays soccer, that has a proper soccer program, boys wow. and girls. You know, outside of that, there's no one else. So it's like when my when I take my girls to go play like these other high schools out in the county, it's like they're getting bankrolled. You know, they got players that play at Richmond Elite, you know, Richmond Strikers, all this stuff. My girls are conditioned there for basketball,
0: you know? <laughs> yeah.
2: And that, that's the mindset of how black people see soccer. They see it as something like, one, they don't want to play the sport because what? They don't want to run.
0: <laughs> yeah, fact.
2: <laughs> Two, they don't Never want to play track, the sport. Though. Yeah, exactly, right? We'll really run crack, but we don't want to run around in soccer. Field. But it's like, it's just that mindset of, and I, I had to like really sit down with my parents and tell them like, soccer is not a sport where you just run. There's a whole, like the foundations of soccer can truly help you out in any sport. Yeah. But if you're going to play it, you have to be serious about playing it. And it's the thing about with soccer is like, they just use it for conditioning to get ready for basketball. They don't see it as I can have this, you know, long, long lasting career. Because even in women's soccer, for instance, like even that, like how much of a muddle mess that is, you know, you have women that play the sport. Now they don't even see the payoff of it, of how far they're going within the sport,
3: you know? Makes sense. Can I, um? can I shift this in a slightly different direction about yeah. in, investment? Um, So, I've been doing some research and looking at, um, I have, uh, these reports are slightly dated, but I do have some specific facts that I wanted to to bring forth. So, I was thinking about what could we do to spur investment for Black owners and potential Black owners to get involved in building these clubs. So, uh, I was looking at this report from Credit, from Credit Suisse from a couple years ago about the um, wealth patterns among the top 5% of African-Americans. So uh, that dollar amount, and we all know about wealth disparities in the United States, racial wealth disparities, it's egregious, but just to level set, the top 5% of African-Americans have a net worth of $356,900 according to this report. So uh, that's the top 5%. And when you look at the investing patterns of those people, you see the uh, top 5% of African-Americans have significantly less equity in business assets than comparably comparably capitalized white people. So 9% of non-financial assets, Uh, for the top 5% of black earners are in business assets, 37% of top 5% white earners are in business assets, 30% of their of their assets are in businesses, only 9% of the top 5% of black uh, people who hit that threshold are in businesses. So there's a, a business equity gap there. There's also, but when you dig deeper and look into where those top 5% black earners are investing, it's actually more in real estate outside the primary home than for comparatively capitalized whites. So 41% um, of, let read this right. Yeah, more in real estate. 41% of black, equity is in non-primary home real estate. So, you know, rental properties, things like that. It's a safe bet. It it can't totally be destroyed because you can always, the safest thing is real estate. You can always sell off a piece of property um, versus only, so 41% of that black capitalization versus 22% of white. And if you look at, uh, but it does go more to residential than commercial. So the, actually the average, the mean value of a residential uh, property, investment property from a black investor is actually much higher than the mean value of uh, a comparative property invested in by whites. It's like 245,000 versus 167,000 um, with the black investors properties being worth that much more. So I think that real estate is a key component of investment in lower division soccer infrastructure. So that's how it can be positioned as, you know, and we want that as fans too. We want these small soccer-specific stadiums. Um, And so encouraging investment, community investment, in building soccer, small soccer fields with small bleachers, but, you know, getting that three-acre plot and owning that land um, could be a uh, a strategy for encouraging investment in this from for black investors. And we know that there's so many teams out there in the UPSL and NPSL. The vast majority of them um, white, or the small number that are black owned are you know they rent high schools, you know, and it's a money suck uh, on. But if a little more upfront investment could build something for the long term that's going to be able to be grown through um, an open system and have opportunities to bring that real estate and build up a stadium um, and and rise that club through the ranks. And I think you guys mentioned it in the in the opening, um, Dr. Kingsley Aquanco. I don't want to pronounce his name wrong. You guys, uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. Aquanco. Um, Okonkwo. Yeah. yeah. So he's, you know, he's the primary owner of that USL League Two headed towards League One uh, cl- franchise there in um, in Corpus Christi. And he's building his own 17.2 million sports complex with a 5000 seat stadium. That's the type of, of asset that should be attracting um, wealthy black investors into the soccer space, because there's no room in the nfl for somebody who's rich but not a billionaire to make a seventy (laughs) dollar investment but those people are out there and soccer is like the the only sport that provides that medium entry point for investment an open system would allow that investment to gain equity and to build up and the last thing i want to make before i shut up on this point is when you look at like usl versus the independent side like a upsl like that's that's um, that's his money. Why should he have to give a check to Jake Edwards at USL uh, to to run that to run that facility and to run that club? Like USL just franchise fees are a scam. They just take the money off the top. But that that's money. Whatever they pay to the USL is more money they could be investing directly into the club, directly into players who could then be built up sold off for transfer fees, bring more revenue back into the club and, and try to build it up through the system. So I'll shut up. and we'll- no. Well, that's
0: that's um, a good point that you made. I know, yeah. I know a lot of the lower league teams or low league owners are looking at the real estate around building a team. So you see a lot of teams. Well, a lot of them
1: are real estate investors. Yeah.
0: So that's like how they're getting it. They're building multi-purpose complexes and figuring out how to, uh, combine the USL franchise or lower league franchise. And then you brought up a great point. Um, all I'm going to say is that I know a couple of USL franchises that are looking at alternatives when it comes to NISA. Uh, I think you'll see NISA grow tremendously over the next three to five years in terms of exposure and expansion.
2: Yeah. Now, nah, I mean, this is, to make sure I get your point right, so pretty much what you're saying is like, there's a lot of black investors, real estate investors. And you're saying like teams need to pair with these investors to then use that land system. Okay, cool. I want to make sure I got that right before anything else.
3: I uh, did, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't even think about pairing with investors. I was thinking those investors start their own thing, but oh, it's more oh, okay, okay. That they would pair with somebody with soccer expertise and stuff like that. To your point is actually even better. Okay. Yeah. And that
2: and that's the point I thought you were making at first, but Okay. Cool. 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 Uh, yeah, I hope it works out. <laughs> that's all I got <laughs> to it, man. I hope it works out, man. That, and that's the thing, like, like I said before, like I'm not anti pro or anything like that. I'm just anti, just doing something just to sake of doing it. And I want to understand like the mechanics. And I, I, I'm not gonna lie, like I'm not one of these people that's on Twitter or social media. You know, you see a lot of people like flaunt, like I know it. You know, I'm not wrong in this. I will admit, like I do not know ProRail. Hell, I barely understand Tam and Gam. So I, know I <laughs> But in ProRail, you wouldn't
3: have to worry about. <laughs> like Tam so yeah. do, you guys, you,
0: do you guys think? Do you guys think USA, like the states, is too big to handle ProRail?
3: No, I, I think it's better than it's big because you could the the t- it's going to be fascinating to see the tiering and the hyper local. W- way that it's structured at the bottom and how it would build out i think it would be build those local rivalries you know when you look at um i know we talked about this on a previous episode but like watch that kinston basketball documentary and you see how they have five different independent gyms in a town of twenty thousand people like that those rival if each of those actually had their own teams those rivalries are the fiercest rivalries that's going to be what the base of the pyramid is going to look like. These hyper-local, you know, high school-like rivalries, Kinston versus Goldsboro, that's what the bottom is going to be. And then it's going to build up bigger and bigger, and the energy starts becoming less about the local rivalry and more about the, you know, traditional professional sports as you rise up the pyramid through the ranks.
2: Yeah, and that's one thing, like, being in Richmond, like, we kind of always are struggling with – like, we got a great with USL League 1 because it's like we were promised, like, a local rival when we went down. Like, our local rival is Greensville, which is four hours away. Like, we got Lounding, which is two hours away, Virginia Beach, United, Virginia Beach City, uh, Lionsbridge, Bridge, uh, Lynchburg, does just join UPSL, like, all closer to us. But, like, the chances of them joining USL League 1 is slim to none,
0: mm-hmm. you know.
2: And that's the thing, like I would love to see more. Like if we truly do get this system that is built. And that's why I'm I'm hoping that it's not a system built from the top down. I want it to be something built from the bottom up. Because like if you build the foundation, it's no point of building a house if you build the roof first. No. You know, like build the foundations out and then let it build up. And that's why I'm hoping like if you know pro route does happen, like Richmond finally does have like these proper like in state rivalries. Cause then we can I don't have to like save up half a year's teacher salary to go to madison like Mm -hmm. i could just get in my car and go to the seven five and hang on a hampton you know
1: yeah i want to touch on um kind of bringing it back to the economic point right so steve i think you're spot on when it comes to um the real estate angle but also you have to kind of think about systemically black people who are acquiring wealth and acquiring it for the first time um what that wealth means to them and to their family, right? They, we ain't never had shit. So I'm investing in real estate as a means to kind of build that generational wealth. But when you think about a sports team, it's a, it's a luxury investment. It's not necessarily like a necessity investment. So it's always seen kind of like as a loss leader. So like, that's why you see a lot of billionaires, you see a lot of multimillionaires who have like fractional ownership in a team or something like that. Right. But I think kind of tailoring that angle in kind of exposing people like first of all how many people understand the business of soccer you know to, un- to to even know that all right let me let me build this field I get rental fees from a league all this other stuff you know you know so there's not a lot of understanding of the business in our community except for those who are already kind of entrenched in the game and that's like a small minority of us right so there's some education that needs to happen there um but also kind of bridging that gap so those with knowledge kind of approaching those individuals who may be looking to um, invest in some type of sport or they may be big sports lovers and want to invest someday if, when they reach their multi-millions, but understand that you don't have to have multi-millions to kind of get in on the ground floor with this sport. So um, there's a lot of education and gap bridging that I think could happen that could kind of open up that, uh, that awareness to uh, more people in the black community. And then also, as it's been mentioned earlier, Um, there's no clear pathway to you know success when it comes to soccer for you know african-americans you have the clear pathway from the you know youth level all the way up through college for football and basketball you know even baseball to a degree which is kind of dying off a little bit but for those main two sports football and basketball you see you can see the clear pathway there's structures that are built on every level to kind of help you get to that next level um so i think it's it's a matter of exposure
3: basketball would be totally game-changing in this country i think that's probably the path i've seen that is mm-hmm. i've long thought that in the last couple of years my feelings have been a little bit radicalized on that like just um creating an open system of independent basketball clubs and bypassing the exploitative college athletics where basketball has an even lower you know entry point lower overhead like that would be i think that would be game-changing and the soccer could trail that um, it'd be hard to break apart the NBA, but at least for, you know, an alternative beyond the D League and and rec like communities could be represented using that kind of Kinston example. Like, you know, what do you think of that?
2: The the thing with basketballers is, is <clears throat> sports like the NBA NFL, like they kinda already have like they have their hooks already in it. Like for like the mm-hmm. NFL owns a day of the week. Like that's like that's insane. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to, like, basketball, it's, you have other little pop-up leagues, but as far, as far as building something that's going to be comparable on the level of the NBA, I struggle to see how that's going to be successful because the NBA have the deals with, like, ESPN, TNT. Like, you know, they're kind of already throwing away college basketball. Like, if you play Wait, college everybody basketball,
3: everybody's ready to throw away college basketball anyway. One and done is the a, is a minimum reality, and more people are bypassing it. You know, and we know that like the, the vast majority of NBA players are black anyway. This yeah, kind of but activism, the vast NBA, majority of- are... NBA is more susceptible to being broken apart by the will of the people if the people were sufficiently willed to birth that into existence is, I yeah. guess, what I'm saying. And That's
2: very true. But the, like Elle said earlier, the educational part of that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. See, the thing about it is there's no educational part being talking about it. Now. It's- The thing about is ingrained in our head, in our in African Americans' head, of I go to college. If I don't make it to the league, I got this four-year degree to back fall back on, because I always got to have a rainy day fund. And the reason why, like, I need to have a rainy day fund is because I know something's going to go wrong. And the other thing too about it is that you know, peripheral is only like a small percentage. I think what is like five or four percent of college basketball players actually like play minutes in the NBA. You know, and I think that it was like double in G League, but, I've, you know, the pathway to it, what college can open up for African-Americans, I think, is something that you won't see us just automatically be like, forget college basketball. I'm just going to try to find this ultra route because how great the LaMelo ball story is, that story is one out of like 10,000. Yeah, it, it doesn't work out that way for everyone because the reason why and this is no fundamental like i'm super happy for him that i'm all about go get your money go get paid but the reason why his story was successful is because he had a backing of financial wealth behind him to say like you can go spend a year in lithuania you can go spend a year at uh independent australia. high school yeah up in Ohio. you can go spend a year in australia the normal black family can't do that because Like, academic wealth doesn't stretch that far. So it's over that. Aren't
3: there hundreds and hundreds of, of, um, I I don't want to have, that's a little hyperbole, but aren't there hundreds of basketball players every year that go across Europe to play professionally? Like, I went to UNCG, and every year, most of the team probably went on to play in Greece or Spain or or whatever these places. There's hundreds of teams that go
2: play overseas. But it's not that thing of like, my cousin, he played, he went to UNCG. I think um, he graduated 2015, went to go play overseas, but it was that thing of like, he went to college to go get his degree because like in black families, like, hell, my parents said it to me, like, I can't afford for you to go to UVA. I can't afford for you to go to Tech. So wherever school offers you this free ride, that's where you're going. <laughs> and that's the way how it works in, you know, in our community where it's like, we're not financially bankrolled where we could, you know, take off a year and just be like, Hey, I'm going to go play over here. It's like for my cousin, for instance, like he went over to go play in Europe because they guaranteed him a contract. It wasn't like he went over there just because like, I want to bypass the whole college system. Like he was just like, All right, I played my four years here, NBA, I'm not, I'm not good enough to get in the draft, so I'll take my time playing in Europe. And if it works out, it works out. It doesn't. But I have a fallback plan of a college degree. So that's where that whole thing of – and I definitely understand where you're coming from about, you know, it, the system does need to be reworked. It can be thrown away if the people get behind it. But that edu- is it really is two components. of it. It's the education of it that needs to happen and it's also the financial backing because – A small percentage of African-Americans have a good financial backing where if you were to like, if you were to pass away today, your kids' kids will be fine. Not like if I pass away today, my kids are still going to have to go out here, (laughs) get a four year degree, maybe get a master's degree. And then, you know, it it takes time for that to build. And that's where that systematic foundation for African-Americans in the sport of soccer it's, you, it, it's weird because now you're starting to see it kind of blossom a little bit. And that's where I, like me, for instance, I'm rooting super heavy for um, Beasley, the Corpus Christi owner, Maryland Bobcats, New Jersey team, because they're the first black owners that we've actually properly seen work and get it right. You know, we haven't seen Beasley yet out in Fort Wayne. We haven't seen how that's all going to run. But like Charlie Adams, like I'm hoping that works out there. Because if they get it straight, then that means now there's more visible eyes. There's more people understanding that education is building. People are now seeing, like, okay, the black owner works. It's almost in the same component of when um Doug Williams won a Super Bowl. Because up to that time point, it was, what was the thing about a black quarterback? He wasn't smart enough for the position. They're just super athletic. They're just wide receivers playing a quarterback. But it's not till he won the Super Bowl that then they were like, oh, they're actually very well. And then you saw the second incarnation of that with um warren moon and all of them and then people are like oh okay they can actually do it and then you saw the third incarnation of that with steve mcnair and michael vick and now you're seeing the fourth incarnation of that with lamar ball you still have people out there that still use like little slight slight jabs of oh he only make your first read oh he only do this i know i'm talking football i'm sorry but like these are analogies that for me but you know it's going to take multiple. Incarnations for it for black people to get that stable foothold, but this is the thing about that love about our culture so much is once we have that stable foothold, we are full throttle, like a hundred percent full throttle. So that's why like those owners, those those set of owners, like I I know they're going to be successful, but I need them to be over the top successful. So then, ten years out and line another set of twenty owners. Can then come in, buy some teams, and then they take over, and then forty, and then it builds on top of that. But you always need that first base layer to be super successful for us. And like I had the conversation with uh, George Metellus, and like he's, if I'm correct, I think he's the only African American color commentator, like sports com soccer commentator, out there, like that any of us see. But the thing about
0: like, like live Northern commentator. States.
2: I, not live, there's but like calling games room. like play
0: by play, like play by play, or like because you have a color commentary and then the play by play.
2: I'm my fault. Uh, what he does, I think he does play by play.
0: Okay, because color commentary, there's a, a bunch of uh black. Who else is
2: black. out there? I, I, I'm i asking because I, I want to know, like, uh, like, um, Roo, do?
0: Charlie Davies, yeah, Charlie uh, oh, okay, Jones. okay. See, um, yeah, know this. yeah, a couple, a couple, a couple ones, okay yeah
2: so like him for instance and the reason why i know george is because he was the first one i ever knew. Okay. like he was the first like my first introduction to the sport was to be in sports and I saw him calling it but it's like it takes like people like them it's someone that's not like an ex-athlete but someone that's like i went to school for journalism i got into the sport and to be that torchbearer it then it expands from there because then it's like that representation you see it and you're like oh i can do this no so that that's kind of where that thing is so you're right on that point but like for black people it, the education needs to be there and the financial backing for it to truly grow it's yeah. just to see right now but would you get those two they'll, they'll blossom
0: And to touch on your earlier point about the like the nba breaking off i think the biggest thing would it comes down to the real estate you got to have your own stadiums uh um, we can't you can't rent the stadiums of the leagues you're competing with i think you know ice cubes three-on-three league is successful but you can only do so much um, yeah. the year, of the lockout when they're playing in high school gyms, they got a big following. But if you really want to expand, you got to have your own stadiums. So if anything, in order to make money, you got to spend money. And mm-hmm. obviously, the players have control. You know, if LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry decided to, you know, do their own thing. Um, a lot of people would follow them. But at the end of the day, you're competing with billionaires who have a bunch of real estate. So.
2: And then also the good old boys network. Yeah. Like, like I, as much as I love LeBron, Katie, all of them, there's only so much they could do because the billionaires, forever got the backing of these TV markets. Yeah, so they can be like LeBron, and them can go create their own league. But then these billionaires could be like, all right ESPN, if you showed one of their games, we're pulling out. Yeah, ABC, I mean CBS. You, know same thing.
0: you got Twitch. You got uh, YouTube. Like you could like, you can have Discord live streaming on yeah. your own. But then it takes more work, and who's willing to, you know, put the work in to grow something from the ground up? Yeah, yeah it's hard to
2: build for
3: it. A lot of work. <laughs> there's, no easy, there's no silver bullet. Anybody who says that pro rel or an open system is a silver bullet is not true. I'm under no delusions in thinking that it's that it's easy. But I, I just I believe that it's like the only way that it's possible. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, we're definitely gonna have you guys back for part two, um, where we can get into a little bit more of the solutioning side um and figure out like how we can actually build something like this or at least um expand the awareness of you know other uh, other ethnic groups, groups of people, other you know, people of various um various economical statuses on you know the access in the really not now, not just the access, but also the viability of, you know, soccer in America, if the system is open. Um, so I want to definitely thank you guys for coming on. Um, appreciate the discussion. I know we're definitely going to, like I mentioned before, we're definitely going to have a part two so that we can really dig into this a little bit more. Um, but yeah, Moby, you have anything else?
0: Nah, I mean, anytime we get you guys on, I know it's a great discussion. Uh, Pro Rel, I feel like we can go on another hour, which is why we're gonna do another part two. Uh, besides that, make sure you get the gear. Uh, it's, it's not too late to get a little holiday gift in for your for your peoples. Um, but that's it on my end.
1: Yep. So as usual, subscribe, rate, review helps us get discovered. Follow us on the socials at Two Cents FC. Where can we Where can we follow you guys, Steve?
3: At NonLeague USA on Twitter, at Nonleak America on Instagram. Not as active over there. Twitter is the number one platform. At Non-League USA, follow us. A lot of interesting stuff is going to be coming out of the Nonleak America world in twenty twenty one. So be on the lookout for some unexpected movement and some unexpected announcements.
1: For sure, Yogi. Yeah,
3: you can follow. Uh, um, you can follow our podcast at
2: River City ninety three. Uh, we're about to kick back up with Can I Kick It season two. And uh, River City 93, uh, the Doccupy series part two. Um, and you can follow me personally at Yogi McLevin on uh, Instagram, I mean, Twitter, but don't follow me uh, after 11 p.m. Uh, <laughs>
0: <Okay.
1: laughs> Twitter after dark,
2: yeah, you know, <laughs> after dark, you gotta put it like that
1: <laughs> for sure. And um, definitely check out our merch at two See the sweatshirt I got on. Um, I think non league America has some merch as well. So hit up nonleagueamerica.com. Check out check them out. Um, tweet us your comments on the show, any topics you want us to discuss. Uh, until next time, folks, y'all have a good one. Peace out. Thank you. Thank you.